and that was our um, weekly rendition of the voices of West Papua. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast with Dean and Julian. Good morning, Julian. Morning, Dean. How are we? Very well, thank you. Very well. I just thought we might um, go and listen to uh, Kate's um, meeting and... Well, she had a chat, I always say meeting, but obviously today we've got a pretty jam-packed show. Um, what we'll do is uh, we'll listen to Kate Aubrey's interview with Professor Mark Taylor at Macquarie University, who has been researching the impacts of the airborne lead contamination for Manizer Mines. Um, so she's done a, a two-part series there. And then um, at 8 o'clock, we're speaking to Michael Green. We're to, yeah, we're speaking to Michael Green, who's got... Um an exhibition happening at the Immigration Museum about um, yeah the experience of asylum seekers coming over here and in detention and then um, you know coming out into the community and what that's kind of meant for them I suppose uh, yeah and then after eight um, we know that it's Cultural Diversity Week here in Victoria um, after eight we will be talking to Romy Makak, who's the CEO of the Lawitcha Institute. And they've done a report on um, racism against Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander peoples. So it's quite mm-hmm. interesting, obviously, you know, we talk about new migrants coming into Australia and new refugees and everything like that, but there is still racism which still happens to the First Nations of, of um, yeah, of Australia. Yes, it's quite prevalent, one would have to think. Oh, yeah, especially, um, you know, we are living in the city in Melbourne. You know, a lot mm. of people just, uh, you, you sort of, if, if you don't even realise how mm. much it happens. You know, some people go, oh, just based on pure looks, they look at an Indigenous person and they go, oh, you can't be Indigenous. Mm. You, you're you're too white. It's like, well, hang on, how, how yeah. do you know? <laughs> um so let's read this. So Mount Isa Mines is one of the biggest mines in Australia, rock mining for lead, zinc, uh, copper and silver. And if you've had the privilege of visiting, one thing that might strike you is how close the mine is to town. Little wonder it has been under the environmental and media spotlight for over the decade. Environmental scientist at Macquarie University, Professor Mark Taylor, has been investigating the impacts of airborne lead in the town for a 15-year period and recently wrote an article for The Conversation. He speaks to Kate Aubrey here at the studio. How long have you been researching Mount Isa mines? Well, the whole issue around Mount Isa mines cropped up when I came to Australia in 1999 on a Royal Society Fellowship. And I flew into Mount Isa, and to do, not to do work at Mount Isa, to go to a place called Riversley, which is a really wonderful place. And we were doing some work on the river. Anyway, when I flew into Mount Isa, one of the team that I was going with was an older guy who knew the area quite well, and he said, do you know that the mine is upstream of the drinking water source? And I said to Kevin, the mine, what is the mine? He said, it's a lead-zinc mine. And I, and, I, and I looked at him and said, it's upstream of the drinking water source? And he said, yes. And I thought, that's a bit odd. So anyway, on return um, to the UK, I started looking into this. And I couldn't find any research, and then I had a job lined up in Australia. Came out later that year, and I continued looking for peer-reviewed research in regard to the impact of the mine on the on the surrounding environment. I couldn't find anything, so I rang the mine. I think it was about two thousand one slash two thousand two, and I said, "Look, I've got a student who wants to do a study of the soils." 
and the sediment soils in around town and the sediments i spoke to the environmental manager at the time and he said well why would you want to do that he said we've collected all the data we know what the nature and extent of the problem is or isn't and you what you're going to do collect a few samples what's that going to show and i said well that sounds great can i have a look at the data and he goes no and i said oh and I said, well, well, I'm going to find out what it's going to show. And I went away, and I just thought there's something a bit odd about that response. And at that time, I was pretty green. I didn't really, I wasn't really across the whole issue around mining and the impact it had on the community and the adverse effects of lead. I was aware of it, but I wasn't really, I, I wasn't embedded in that literature. Mm. And I, so I redid it, basically. I recollected all the samples, um, and the results were pretty startling you could see the impact of the mine on the river and you could see that there were contaminants in the soil and they were much higher closer to the mine than what they were at distance and so we could see all this association between the operations and the footprint of the mine and contaminants in the in the sediments and on the floodplain and also in the soils in and around town and then then the journey started and so the mine's been in operation since 1920 something or th- I think it, the ore was discovered in 1923 yeah and then um, I think I think the mine started 1924, oh. and then the smelter was switched on in 1931. Mm. And there's a really interesting report which is available. Uh, it was conducted for the Queensland Parliament 1933. It's an inquiry into uh, lead poisoning at Mount Isa, and in there it's actually got some environmental data. They've got uh, air quality data that's been collected at and around the smelter. And it, when you transform the units, it comes out at around about 7,500 micrograms per cubic metre of lead in the air around the smelter. Now, in those days, the smelter wasn't really, you know, the, the contaminants weren't in case, there wasn't a bag house or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So 7,500 cubic uh, micrograms per cubic metre, you can benchmark that to the current lead in air standard, which is average over year of 0.5 microgram. So... When I read that, I thought, well, the concept of the pollutants or the contaminant never blowing from the mine across town is just, it's preposterous. Unless there's an invisible five kilometre high wall between, you know, the mining operations and the town. You know, we knew the wind was predominantly blowing from the southeast across the town, across the mine and blowing the contaminants out into the outback. But about 20% of the year, the wind was blowing the opposite direction. So we thought, well, of course it's going to be blowing. And as you can see in the photograph which is on the conversation, you can see those emissions blowing across town. Yeah. And, you know, they say they turn off their smelting operations when, when the wind is adverse, and maybe they don't turn it off in time, but clearly the, that is direct evidence of the stuff blowing across town. And so it turns out in the Glencore report, you know, 2017, which looks at the issue of lead, lead sources in and around Mount Isa, that dust is a predominant issue. So the recent report that Glencore has um, commissioned, it sort of takes some level of responsibility um, that you said compared to other reports that came out where they kind of tried to just push the blame. When we raised this back in 2006, there was a story on ABC and there was somebody from the mine talking and I just thought that's just not true. He was saying it's all naturally occurring and and I rang up the ABC and said, look, this is me, this is what I've done, this is who I am and that's I, that's just not true. That's what that is not what the data shows. And so the journey began in in earnest in 2006. And their argument in the early years, up until about 2011, is that look, it's all naturally occurring. That's why mm-hmm. the town was built here. It's all it's for all, the the re- reason why there's contaminants in and around the town is is because. 
the lead is naturally occurring and some of the relevant ore body, the Urquhart shale, outcrops in town. That is all true. But the fact that the lead is is distributed across the city, not just associated with the geological bands, the, the rock strata that have the, 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 the ore body in, it contradicts the notion that it's naturally occurring. If it was all from the ore body, the kids who were leaded yeah. from natural mineralisation would be along a linear band. And yeah. that's just not the case. Then they said, oh, it's naturally occurring in industrial mineralisation. So as our data emerged, they changed their story. And maybe as they started to realise from some of their own data that that really wasn't a tenable argument, they then started to shift. And then now this report has come out, it, they've completely changed the view. They said, OK, the stuff comes out from the mine and it deposits in town. The greatest risk is from fallout, fallouts from the atmosphere, which cause, uh, and the biggest risk is inside houses from dust. But to be honest, you, it's not rocket science. You just have to go there and look at the place. I know. I Googled it before and noticed that I couldn't believe when I found Mount Isa that the mines were actually bordering the west side of the town, like by one street. Well, there's some houses on the on the other side. There's some shops that back onto the railway uh-huh. line, and then you've got the after the railway line. Then you've, in fact, there's a really interesting report for, uh, that was conducted, but for the Australian Railway Union workers, and what that report basically showed in 1949 that the dust was coming off the mine site mm. and was blowing from the slag heaps in, onto the quarters of the railway workers. Massive contamination. So even back in 1949 yeah. again, yeah. we could see evidence, there was information that the stuff is getting off the site and it is blowing into town. So it was just a, it's just a silly argument. And there is not one mining or smelting site around the world that is above ground like the operations are at Mount Isa, that has no impact. Um, so this report, it's got some suggestions, uh, such as ripping up the carpets, putting timber floors on, wiping um, your benches more frequently, not allowing children to put objects in their mouths. I mean, you've put all this in, in your report. No, well, it's good advice. There's nothing wrong with that advice in itself. However... You can't stop children putting things in their mouths. Yeah, but I mean, what, it, what about outside of the home? Well, hang on, let's just stick in some. That's normal hand-to-mouth behaviour, normal exploratory behaviour in children, particularly under three. They do that, particularly under two. Um, so that's that issue. The issue of keeping your house clean is just... It's basic. It's basic sort of operational activity in a home, standard operating procedure. However, the evidence shows in regard to uh, cleaning regimes to mitigate lead exposure, whether the cleaning regimes work, the answer is no, there's no evidence to show it works. And the reason is is that you can't, people forget, they can't keep on top of the cleaning Mm. when there is a constant rain of contaminated dust getting into your home, whether it's from the soil outside or whether it's from the atmosphere, it gets into the home, it covers all of the surfaces, and it's inescapable. And so it will accumulate in carpet. I mean, carpet's largely a filthy thing. It's really hard to keep them clean. They are magnets for mm. dust. And a little child uh, who are closer to the ground, they play on the ground a lot more. They run their trains through or, or the dolls or whatever it happens to be through the carpet. They then stick them in the mouths. They then absorb the lead dust. You know, it's, and so removing the carpet would reduce that as a, a, an exposure path. And having hard floors are easy to clean and wet mopping is, is much more effective than vacuuming. I, that is, all makes sense. However, if there's no lead in the environment, there's no problem. If there is better remediation on the site or mitigation, there will be lesser of a problem. And if you look at all of the studies, what they show quite clearly is that 
When you remove lead in air, you also reduce the exposure in kids. So you can look at that when you've looked at mine sites. You can look at that in trail in Canada. You can see a massive reduction in blood leads in kids when they t turned off the smelter and they put a new smelter in. You can see it at Bullaroo in New South Wales as the, um, as the smelter emissions were reduced and when they eventually turned off the smelter, blood lead just plummeted. You can also see it um, in Mount Isa. You can see that there's lead in the air and at Port Pirie and at Broken Hill, and blood leads and atmospheric lead is much more elevated in those communities relative to communities in cities where there's now no lead in the atmosphere because mm. we removed lead from petrol. And that was another example I didn't give. You can see there's something like a 0.9 correlation between uh, petrol lead emissions emitted to the atmosphere from the 1970s and blood lead data. Same thing in the States, and we've done this in Australia, the two track each other as lead in air dropped i.e the emissions from petrol lead in petrol as it fell so did blood lead that's the crux of the issue if you get it out of the air many of your problems will be reduced uh, a bit of gill scott heron there um it's uh, been a hectic morning sometimes you sleep in and then you're sort of you know lucky for kate uh, it's fascinating listening to that uh, conversation with professor mark taylor about what's happening to the um, communities out there. We've got a second part of that interview to come, but we thought we might just uh, touch on a few things before we listen to um, Mark Taylor finish off, um, yeah, the uh, Mount Isa rock mines there. What have you got? Yes, well, there's been a terrorist attack in London um, last night, Dean. There are four dead and 20 injured. Um, a man drove four-wheel drive down Westminster Bridge, um, ramming a number of people. Um, and entered Parliament with a knife um, and stabbed a cop um, who is among the dead. Um, which, which sounds a bit silly to me that you're going to try and go in there with a knife <laughs> yeah. in such I'll, a busy populated area near one, the London One nine air. army. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no. it does seem like a suicide mission, Dean. But um, thankfully, no affiliation to any terrorist groups have been has been proclaimed, which is kind of the worst thing about these things because... You know, it justifies, you know, heightened police control, police surveillance, um, which, you know, really isn't a nice thing as far as I'm concerned. No. Um, I mean, for and especially for us here in Melbourne, we're in the middle of uh, Cultural Diversity Week, um, which is why our show is focusing on some of the issues that we um, have within our society down here in Victoria. Uh, I mentioned... Um, we will be speaking uh, with an uh, editor of an exhibition called They Cannot Take the Sky Exhibition, which talks really about um, uh, stories from detention. So that's Michael Green. And mm. then after eight, there is an institute called the Lawita Institute, um, and it's, a, it's a Australia's National Institute for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Research. And so they'll be talking about a report which talks about experiences of racism um, you know, within Indigenous people of Australia. Um, we've got no time really to do alternative news. I would have loved to have touched on issues such as Harmony Day, which happened on the 21st of um, March, and also mm. the International Human Rights Against Discrimination, which also happened. It's hard to fit it all in, in one hour. Yeah. <laughs> but let's listen to uh, uh, part two of Kate Aubrey's um, chat with uh, Professor Mark Taylor, and then um, you and I will come and... Uh, 
do our best for the last half hour with our two wonderful guests. Health <sighs> risks to kids with blood level lead levels. Yeah. So you were talking about a higher increase in. Um, lead levels in the blood has this um, decrease in IQ? The evidence shows there's no safe exposure for lead, so we must do everything to mitigate that exposure. And primary prevention is the cornerstone of environmental health. So that means we stop the problem arising you know, before it actually gets into people's homes and kids can be exposed. Because cleaning at home doesn't work. So when kids are exposed, the data shows it reduces IQ. To give you an essence of the magnitude of the effect of that, Rachel Earle, who completed a PhD at the University of Adelaide, did this fantastic study. It's a relatively small cohort, but she looked at children at Broken Hill and Port Pirie, and it is the most up-to-date, most recent data on Australian kids. But the study looked at the relationship, amongst a few other things, looked at the relationship between full-scale IQ and blood lead. And what she showed was when a child's blood lead went from one microgram per deciliter up to, that's 10 parts per billion, up to 100 parts per billion or 10 micrograms per deciliter, blood lead fell 13.5%. Now, in Broken Hill, 20-odd percent of kids exceed 10 micrograms per Mm. deciliter. So 13.5 full-scale IQ points or 13.5% because the average IQ is about 100. It's huge. And it's permanent. Yeah, the evidence shows this is the, the, you know, the crux of the problem that you get this exposure and it doesn't remit which is why primary prevention is really key and there's no safe level. You know, her study, like other studies that have been conducted in the States and elsewhere, showed that there is, in fact, the, the worst impacts occur between 1 and 10 micrograms per deciliter. For each unit of exposure, the relative effect is much greater between 1 and 10 than what it is between 20, 10 and 20. So it's mm. a super mm. linear curve. And that's why prevention, primary prevention, no exposure or absolutely minimal exposure is really critical because as each increment of exposure occurs, so the, between 1 and 10, so the greatest losses in IQ occur. Understand. What are some of the mitigating then? Like what are some of the procedures that say other mines um, overseas or who has better practices that this mine could say be doing better? Well, as you've already noted, you, you wouldn't today... Build, a house, build, build houses around the mine. So in 1909, the Queen, a Queensland doctor, Alfred Jeffries Turner, he identified the issue of lead exposure from paint in, in old Queenslanders. And he basically said the only solution to the problem is to take the child away from the source of the pollution. And so in communities like Mount Isa and Port Pirie and Broken Hill, the communities, because they're all historical communities dating back to the early 20th or the late 19th, century the communities were built up around the mining location so you've got this legacy environmental this legacy planning so it's a non-ideal situation so other things that you can do today you can put better smelter technology in which is what they're doing at port pier they're spending half a billion dollars putting a cleaner smelter and a better smelter in that will reduce emissions you can uh, have improved encasement and enclosement of the ore at the surface and the processing that occurs at the surface, either crushing and the concentrating, you can deal with the dusts that are dissipated around the mine site. They have got these dust suppressants that they can use. And basically you can do a lot of things to reduce the uh, production of dust 
as well as emissions that would come from the smelting activities where there is smelting activities. You can put on better smelt, mm. better bag houses, better filtration. Um, you lose less product because they're losing product. Basically, that's what's happening. They're losing product to the environment. And so there are alternative ways to reduce it. But the honest truth is you can't stop all of it. Yeah. It's very difficult. And, and we have to be fair to these companies. Most... Um, Australians are using lead. It's a really important, a really valuable product. Yeah. We have to accept that. The question is how we manage it. In these communities, are they getting proper and their fair share of environmental justice? I would have said the answer is no. But it's very difficult for them to tackle this issue because their incomes are largely based on the mining operations. So that's one of the things. We can, we can do some things. We can improve the dust suppression. We can improve the smelter operations. We can remediate areas that are already contaminated in these communities. And, of course, we can advise, give advice about cleaning, etc., which is good in itself, but the evidence shows it doesn't really work. You've been there a number of times, and we are just talking before, um, how, like, this community, there isn't continual protests to stop the mines, like where, how you've got with fracking and in those communities. Is there you know, a general sense of the mine is okay? Well, I think, uh, to be honest, I think they feel that they, their community is under attack. And that's not really the intent of the From work. scientists like yourself? Yeah, yeah, and that's not the intent. The intent of the work is to make... Because when we started out on this journey, the mine hadn't fessed up that there was an impact. We're at 2017. Now they're fessing up that there's an impact from their operations. And we're all about informed consent and providing the right information to the public so that they can understand the nature and extent of the problem. And they can make a choice. Well, the children can't make a choice. So that's a separate conversation. But the adults can make a choice. OK, we're aware of the problem. We can choose or not choose to, to go to this town. Unfortunately, children do not have a say in that decision. And that's why we've always put forward the argument that we need to protect the children of Australia, because they cannot protect themselves. And also those children are the future of Australia. I've spent a lot of good uh, nights and days in Mount Isa doing my work. I've enjoyed myself up there, but that's not the point. And I think people miss that. But yeah. it's always handy to attack the scientists. I mean, I've, had, I've been described as um, the person who wrote that article must work in hospital-like conditions. He wouldn't know a real town. Mount Isa's a real town. And I do know Mount Isa. I spent a lot of time there. You know, when the insults get personal, you know they're not talking about the science. And I want to talk about the science, the numbers, and, and, and making sure the outcomes are better. And if we take all of the things that we've said and all the studies that we've raised and we look at what's happened since all that work's happened and the there's been all the health studies about blood lead there's been uh, epa studies about lead management we can see that blood leads have fallen that they're still elevated but they have fallen in mount isa there's been over 600 million dollars invested by the mining company in terms of environmental improvements that's an investment in australian environments for the betterment of Australian people, for the betterment of the community. I guess what changes have you seen in the the initiatives of the mine um, themselves? Well, I think the, the, the mine, well, now they've, this report is out. They've been, that, that's, a, that's a bit of a game changer because mm. it's an admission. But prior to that, we've seen, uh, we've seen much more focus on air quality management, a lot more monitoring. Mm. Uh, they've now got an app where you can look at the sulfur dioxide emissions. That's still a problem in Mount Isa because mm. it blows across town. So we've seen a lot more effort put into informing the community um, and they've seen significant investments in terms of 
um, environmental improvements at the site. And also, like uh, I mentioned, there have been health studies that have been paid for by the government. And in addition to that, the, the EPA have issued a new licence to the operator, which is Mount Isa Mines, now owned by Glencore, which has got um, improved targets about lower emissions to the environment. So overall, when you look at the overall package, it's good. They have, you know, the government have taken action, uh, both EPA and health. The mining company themselves have been proactive in, in trying to reduce their emissions or spending money on environmental improvements. So they've not done nothing. You know, they're an operator. They want to produce lead. That's part of their business, along with zinc and other metals. And we all and, use and it, like you say. We, we all use it. And so I see that that conversation that's been had through the uh, through the media and all through our research articles has had effect. Mm. And I think we're in a much better position now than what we were. How have you changed in the last 15-odd years since you've been doing research there? You said you never intended to do sort of this extensive study in the area um it was kind of coincidence by going to mount isa um well it really changed my whole career and it's i would say in many ways it changed my whole life the whole issue around about lead and understanding the arguments put forward by industry and the defenses by uh, government have allowed me to sort of develop my knowledge about about the the relationships and the the dance that goes on around contamination and consequently i i've now developed quite uh, solid expertise in that area about understanding contamination. I've then subsequently done work in Port Pirie and Broken Hill and Bullaroo and stuff in Townsville and, and so the list goes on. It's led me down a completely different path and um, the objective though has never changed. Delineate what the truth is in order to give informed consent, in order to adduce better environmental and human health outcomes and I think we've managed to achieve that in many of the places that we've worked and I've done that with my students, I couldn't have done it with a lot of my students. They've just they've just been fantastic. You know, we've we've got a huge amount of pleasure about trying to give something back to the community mm. in a really constructive way, not just some other another academic treatise. A, a study which has got practical implications that can help provide information to produce better community outcomes. Well, there's the silver lining of Mount Isa Mines. <laughs> um, All that work went down like a lead balloon, of course, you know. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you for coming in today Thanks to the studio, Mark. Yeah, really appreciate it. Ah, and that was um, Professor Mark Taylor talking um, to Kate Aubrey. And I think, as I mentioned, uh, he was talking about um, the, you know, miners and mines being one of the biggest mines in Australia. Uh, rock mining for lead. He's an environmental scientist at Macquarie University um, and he has been investigating the impacts of airborne lead in the town for over 15 years. It's just gone 8 o'clock and it's time now to uh, get to our first guest. Yes, we have um, Michael Green on the line now talking um, to us about the um, book and associated exhibition they Cannot Take the Sky, Stories from Detention. How are you this morning, Michael? I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. Um, yeah, maybe you can tell us just a bit about what's um, happening with this exhibition. So, yeah, just last Thursday night we opened an exhibition at the Immigration Museum in Melbourne, so just down on Flinders Street in the old Customs House, um, and it comprises of um, stories from 22 different people about their experiences 
in immigration detention. And there are some people who were in detention in the 90s through to people who are in offshore detention now. Um, and those stories are taken from this book, which just came out last week, called Under the Same Name, They Cannot Take the Sky. Yeah, great. Um, and how important is it for these um, refugees to be able to tell their own stories in you know, a political climate where they're pretty much told everything about themselves? Yeah, absolutely. And so that was the impetus for us starting the project to begin with. So there was a, a small team of writers a few years ago um, started this group called Behind the Wire, and it's an oral history project about immigration detention. And basically, we just felt like there was so much commentary you hear from so many politicians talking about this issue of um, people coming by boat and seeking asylum and talking about detention, but you don't hear so much about the um, from the, the people the directly. Journey. Yeah, oh, and also about what it's like in detention. So what is it that we do to people um, when we put them in detention? And so we wanted to really just go and find out and speak to people um, in a lot of detail about that and then work with them to tell their story. And, Michael, you mentioned uh, you wanted to talk to people. Did you get to meet some of the people in the book yourself? For sure, yeah. So I, um, I, there, there was a small team of interviewers, mm. um, but I, I've, really, I've got to know everyone, actually, um, in the book, and some people really, really closely. So what we did is we would meet people um, several times to see if they wanted to participate, and then we'd conduct interviews for hours and hours, sort of um, some people kind of up to eight hours. Um, yeah, and work. sorry, and I guess, I'm sorry to interrupt you there, the reason I sort of asked that was we talk about, you know, Australia being very culturally diverse and obviously now we're, we're celebrating Cultural Diversity Week, which talks about, uh, you know, a multicultural society in which we live in and, and the theme this year is Our Journey, Our Stories. Did you get a sense from these these, these um, refugees and the people you spoke to about whether they had an understanding of Australia being multicultural at all? Look, I mean, it sort of varies depending on, on the person and where they come from and what their life's been like up until that point. But lots of people we spoke to um, didn't really intend to come to Australia necessarily. They were just trying to get away from where they were going from. Mm. Um, I, uh, we also, as well as the book and the uh, um, exhibition, we also are making a podcast called The Messenger together with the Wheeler Centre. And for yes, that, I've spoken with one guy... His name is um, Aziz. He's a Sudanese guy in currently in detention on Manus Island. Um, and Aziz basically just, he says, like, he had no idea about Australia, what it was, anything about it um, before he came. He just tried, was trying to get away from, as far away from Sudan as possible. Which shows the... Visa sorry. For Indonesia. He was, yeah, sorry. He was able to get a visa for Indonesia, and then once he was there, he... It just it found that he couldn't make he, he couldn't live safely there either, so he just had, took the next step, which was to try and get to Australia. Which does show the futility of those advertisement campaigns you, that the government was doing in you know war torn countries, saying you're not going to get into Australia if you come, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean there are differences in you know people's experiences in different places, mm. um, and yeah, there, there's another story in the exhibition. Actually, which 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 does go to this, um, but it's um, there's a, a surgeon. His name is Munjed Al Madaris, 
he's got his own book. He speaks a lot. But he um, had fled Iraq just like like that. He had to flee from Saddam's um, Republican Guard. And um, he came from a super rich family, um, really well educated, like the top of the top in, in Iraq. Yeah. But he just got out of there and he, um, I think he made his way to Malaysia before um, a smuggler said, oh, you're, you're coming to, you're going to go to Australia. And that was the first time he'd heard about it. And what's been um, the kind of um, feel about, you know, when you do talk to these refugees, what do they say the kind of most agonising part of being in detention was? Oh, that's a good question. Or um, still is. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, look, uh, everyone talks about the, um, the difficulty of dealing with the indefinite nature of it. So not yeah. knowing, um, not being able to plan, uh, not being able to have something to look forward to um, or to, to calibrate your thoughts about, you know, there's, there's going to be a time when you'll get out. Um, look, there are lots of aspects about detention that are, that are really difficult, so it's, it's hard to sort of say one thing, but, but definitely the indefinite nature of it is something that stands out. And is the exhibition then, I guess, um, uh, there to, 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 I guess, make most Australians ask ourselves, you know, what kind of people are we and how, how did we possibly let, let it come to a situation where we keep people who are fleeing persecution in detention for five years or, or longer, even kids at some stage? Yeah, look, I mean, as your questions asked earlier and as I was talking about it, really what we just want to do is is provide this platform and, and ask people about their experiences and then um, there's over two hours of video and audio material and people are talking about all kinds of different things. That some people talk about their journey and, um, you know, experiences trying to contact family, friends they made in detention, uh, ways that they've resisted their detention... Um, and a little bit for the people who are out, what their life's been like um, now that they're in the community. And what we really want is for people who go along to see it is just to, you know, get a different perspective, a different perspective than they normally come across, and then and then see where that thought, those those things that they've learned, um, take them. Yeah. Well, all we hear in you know popular media is that these people are queue jumpers and boat people which, you know, really kind of reduces, you know, the uh, myriad different experiences of people to just a couple of catchphrases that are, you know, politically useful for the government to continue yeah, to I mean, hold people mandatorily um, in detention. Um, you, make, you make such a good point. So what really comes across as you're watching all these different faces um, is people's different personalities. You know, you see them on screen and 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 you just get such a sense of the complexity of humans and the different experiences we all have and the different ways we respond to those experiences. Um, mm. There's lots of moments of humour. There's, you know, lots of um, beauty in the different stories they tell. Um, and... And it's just a really human thing. It's not. It's not all about suffering. It's. It's not all about um, resilience. It's. It's just really rich and complex. Uh, and that's sort of. That's what. So, with the exhibition, we had a committee of our narrators, so the people who had participated in 
telling their stories in the book, helped to design and direct the exhibition. And that's really what they wanted, something that was um, complex and, and human. And, and I really think that comes across. And the exhibition is on, um, as I mentioned, is of the 17th uh, until the 2nd of July. Um, where can people go to, just to, to see the exhibition and also, obviously, the podcast? For sure. So the exhibition's at the Immigration Museum in Melbourne on, on Flinders Street, 400 Flinders Street. And, yeah, it's open till the 2nd of July. Um, the book called The Cannot Take the Skies, just at all all good bookstores and online, and the podcast is called The Messenger, and that um, is available through the Wheeler Centre or um, any podcast app. And what's the structure of the book? How's it laid out, all these you know, different stories? So the book um, has 35 different people's stories, um, and they're just, so each person has a chapter. Um, there's, and then there's a, a bunch of people that we've, um, wo- where we've woven together vignettes from their story, um, okay. and um, there's a there's one part. That, so the book has three parts, but one of the parts is is just men who are um, on Manus Island, um, and and then other than that, we, we've loosely clustered them. But um, yeah, basically, it's it's structured in terms of a chapter for each person. And are there any um, stories that spring to mind now that? Um are particularly beautiful or interesting that you might want to um, call to mind? Look, I mean, I, I've become really close to um, all these people, so it's really... And, and, I, and I, every time I try to think of one that I, <laughs> I'd like to talk about, I, I'm like, oh, but then the other one as well. I, I feel them really deeply. Mm. Um, but I will say the, the final story in the book is um, a a man who goes by the pseudonym of Peter, and he's a, um, a Tamil a man from Sri Lanka, and he was one of the ASIO-rejected um, detainees. So he was found to be a refugee very quickly after he um, was detained, and then he was held for another six years um, because of a secret report that said that it wasn't safe for him to come out. Um, and, you know, that he, he talks about... Um, the writing that he did, he likes to try and write short stories, and um, it's just really powerful. <laughs> when he talks mm. about the effect of the detention had on his on his body, um, and the way that he was so arbitrarily held, um, it's incredibly affecting. But but then also, you know, he talks about um, when he gets out of detention, trying to make sense of, of what he sees in Australian society around him. Um, and trying to continue to write to help him understand that. And um, it's something that that I think is very powerful. All right. Yeah, great. All right, thanks for coming on the program, Michael. It's been great having you. Um, no worries. It's great to chat about. Thanks, Michael. Yep. And, uh, yeah, hopefully uh, people turn up to the exhibition, and thank you for joining us on 3CR. Yeah, it's happening from... Oh, sorry. Yeah, the exhibition's happening from um, now until the 2nd of July at the Immigration Museum at 400 Flinders Street. So get on down, hear some stories. Ah, it's just gone past quarter past eight on 855 AM 3CR. Got a bit, got a bit confused there earlier with um, some phone calls. It's time now to introduce our next guest. I mentioned that, um, you know, we are celebrating... Um, 
Cultural Diversity Week here in um, Victoria, I guess, and we talk about um, the multicultural society in which we live in, and you know, um, and the the, the theme is uh, cultural diversity, our journey, our stories. But there is actually something closer to home which we should be aware of. There was a a summary uh, report that was released. Um, a while back by the uh, Lawitja Institute. Well, it was funded by the Lawitja Institute. I'd never heard of them before. But what it talked about was um, experiences of racism for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. To find out a little bit more about the report and also about the uh, Lawitja Institute, if I'm saying it right, we are joined by the CEO of the Lawitja Institute, uh, Romley um, Kalka. Good morning, Romley. Morning, Jean. Uh, good to good to be having a yarn today. Sorry, yeah, I said um, it's Romley Mycack. I apologise yeah, for yeah. that. No, that's um, Am I saying the Lawitcher Institute right? Is that the name? Uh, the emphasis is on the. Um, well, I'll just pronounce it. It's the Lawitcher. The emphasis on the first syllable, Lawitcher. Lawitcher. Uh, named after um, our great um, Aboriginal leader, Lawitcher O'Donoghue herself. And the organisation works really, um, from what I read, to, to uh, I guess, look at the health and well-being of Australia's first people through um, research and, and translation and obviously in the new generation. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So we're the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Research Institute uh, based um, here in Melbourne, but we have a national um, network uh, with... Uh, directly into communities with researchers across a whole range of institutions, Aboriginal organisations, as well as um, medical research institutes. And um, there are several governments who are also partners in our efforts. Um, and we have a strong international connect, connection and network with, with a bunch of um, our colleagues, our Indigenous colleagues internationally. And why did, did was there, I mean, obviously uh, Dr. Lowichard O'Donoghue, um, it, it, it's named after her. Um, why did you think that there was a need for sort of like a, co- a cooperative research centre into Indigenous health? I mean, yeah, it's only started well, in 2010. So the, the Lowichard Institute itself has been um, around for about, this is seventh year, so mm. that's right, 2010. The predecessors to the Institute were, as you say, cooperative research centres, and we actually um, we, we host one at the minute. Um, and the, so CRCs, as they're known, um, try to get researchers, um, the users of research and policy people together to look at the kinds of things that are, that are needed in terms of gaining new knowledge or creating new knowledge, and then trying to translate that into things that are going to make a difference um, ultimately. This has got to be the endeavour for research. Research alone um, will not um, will not deliver for us the results, the impacts that we want for our people. So there's that translational space, as you say, and ultimately we want to see that change on the ground. Um, so that's... Uh, so, so the, the uh, predecessors to the Institute have been around this is going into its 20 year now since CRC started, uh, and the the driving uh, uh, rationale to get that off the ground initially was for us to take control of the research um, uh, process ourselves. We had a lot of uh, non-indigenous people coming into our communities, uh, almost demanding to continue to you know 
uphold that legacy of anthropologists and others uh, in the early days where we were researched, our, our heads were measured, our mm. blood and samples were taken, mm. but we had no control over that. So that's essentially the, the reason for us being. And I guess this leads me to, you know, what I'd notice. I mean, I mentioned in the intro there that we talk about Cultural Diversity Week or we are in the middle of it now. Um, but the, 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 the report that you, you did, the summary report, talked about mental health impacts of racial discrimination in Victorian Aboriginal communities. I would, I would think a lot of people within Melbourne or even Victoria wouldn't really be aware that, you know, that there are racial discrimination against Victorian Indigenous communities. Yeah, well, the, the, the research um, that was conducted in 2010-2011 uh, um, is still very pertinent. In fact, um, you know, let's look at the week that we've had where mm. two days ago there was debate, um, fervent debate in the federal parliament around watering down 18C. Mm. Um, so, so to make the point that um, um, racism is alive and kicking in this country, um, in fact, in the we have a national Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander health plan that our health leaders negotiated with initially Labor and now uh, worked with the Coalition on implementing that plan. That plan um, has a vision for a health system free of racism hmm. in this country. So this is an, an acknowledgement that racism exists and it exists in the health system. We need to do something about it. Um, and the watering so, down of that Racial Discrimination Act would have taken away the minimum standards of protection in general, let alone the health protections. Precisely, you know, the, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations shoulder to shoulder with with religious and ethnic and multicultural groups have um, have called for the retention of the, the, the RDA as it stands. Um, we are absolutely united on this and um, because we're the ones that, that bear the brunt of, of racism. We are the targets and it's our health and well-being that suffers. Um, so the irony um, in front of us presently, where many of those who have never and will never suffer the negative impacts of racism are themselves saying that their, um, you know, their freedom of speech um, um, is is imposed upon. Um, you know, it's just a nonsense, really. Uh, and this report highlights all of that. Mm. It, it talks. It talks about. Uh, how racism is bad for one's health. Um, and while the, the subjects in, in this report, the, um, the participants were Aboriginal people in Victoria, over 750, the, uh, the findings, I'm sure, relate to, to many of your listeners um, and, you know, gets to the heart of the ubiquity of the experience of racism. 97% of the 755 or so respondents um, to the survey had experienced racism in the previous year. And and what are some of the detrimental impacts that are highlighted in the report? Um, well, it's a, it's a very simple statement that um, that racism makes us sick. Um, and this is, the us here is not just Aboriginal people. Mm. The study is about Aboriginal people, but it makes us all sick, mm. and I think it makes the nation sicker for it because we can't own up to the sorts of truths that we need to. At, a, at an individual level, um, the, the study um, 
looked at the prevalence of racism, uh, and I talked about ubiquity, so, you know, it happens everywhere, shops, public spaces, you know, in sporting settings, public employment, transport. public mm. transport. And it looked at, um, you know, what types of experience of racism. Um, so there's a whole bunch of things, and the, the rates are very high. They're alarmingly high. So, for, for example... <coughs> Um, 84% of those 755 people were sworn at, verbally abused or subjected to offensive gestures because of their race, because of their Aboriginality. Was, um, that, was that over a period of time or was that... Um, uh, 12 months, was it? Over a 12-month period? The, the survey had, okay. ex- had surveyed the experience of racism in the previous 12 months. Okay, yep. Yeah, and so I think when you talk about that, stuff. sorry, um, Romney, when you talk about that, it 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 it's um it comes back to the heart of what you were saying, it, regardless of whether you are Indigenous or whether you're a refugee or whether you are um, an Australian. Racism does make you sick. You know, a lot of people will have high levels of psychological distress, which are not exclusively related to racism. However, the, the people who do experience high levels of racism become, you know, they go above the threshold of psychological distress. Well, that's right. And and one of the instruments that was used to draw the link between health and well-being or, or um, you know, the impacts on health and well-being and racism was, was a, a, uh, a tool called the Kessler, Kessler 6 tool, which measures stress, essentially. Um, and so those who had more experiences, more racist events that they'd experienced um, had higher degrees of stress, which then meant um, higher level of negative impacts on their mental health and well-being. And a part of this stuff is, you know, the the insidiousness of racism is that we end up carrying that. um, And so we then try to put in protections. And some of those protections just build up their cumulative um, and some of the protections is just, you know, try and turn the cheek and ignore the perpetrator or, you know, um, uh, not confront um, the person or feeling disempowered to confront the person when you might have wished to. Um, now, all of that loads, you know, the, the stressors um, become uh, cumulative. They, they're added on to. And so you get this other effect, which is just the, the, the high degree of stress that people carry in mm. anticipation of racist events um, being directed towards them. We, we could talk about this all day, Romley. And I know, obviously, the, um, the, the survey and the report was done a while back. It, it is, uh, sorry, between 2010 and 2013. It's part of the uh, localities embracing and accepting diversity program, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. The... Um, the um uh, lead project it was um, was known at uh, known as the localities embracing and accepting diversity, and it's um, a, and it's available obviously um, for people who might be interested in looking at it at the Lowitcher um, website, which is www.lowitcher.org.au. So L O W I T J A, and people can go into the publications. I mean, I I had a quick look. It's uh, four pages that you can look at and scan, and it's you know some of the Findings um, in terms of what was learnt and some of the strategies for change are quite simple, but also quite amazing to think that we need strategies like that to mm. help Indigenous people. 
Yeah, that's right. And uh, I'd invite um, uh, listeners to jump on to our website um, and um, there's material on this report but but others as well that may be relevant to your communities and um, more than ever I think we need to stand together at this time. Mm. And what were, what were some of the strategies for change highlighted in that in the report, Romney? Well, some of them are, uh, are kind of um, organisational. Um, so, you know, in- increasing efforts to support employers and staff to comply with anti-discrimination legislation, for example. Um, so we've got this very... The RDA, Racial Discrimination Act, um, you know, under attack at the moment in this country. Um, ready to be watered down. Mm. Um, compliance to anti-discrimination legislation is is required, um, and discrimination happens in 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 a range of institutions. So it's really up to the institutional leaders to to carry that forward. Um, thinking about strategies to promote respect and social cohesion. Now, mm. cultural diversity week you know, shines a light on these issues, but we should be thinking and acting on them throughout the year. Not um, just for one week. Not just for one week. So, um, you know, and then that might just be as simple as, um, you know, being um, being more collegiate with your, your, um, your co-worker or, um, you know, trying to get um, a sense of um, the shared space. Um, here in Melbourne, you know, there's been a long history of colonisation of this space, but Aboriginal people are here, uh, a very strong and proud people. Mm. Um, mm. So, uh, you know, understand that history, reach out to the Indigenous community, um, um, share, you know, break bread, share food together, all of those sorts of things at an ind- individual and family level make a huge difference, I think. Well, and, thank um, you, Romley, for joining us. We really do appreciate that, and um, you enjoy your day. Thank you, Dean. Thanks, um, and uh, happy to talk to you this morning. Thank you very much. Cheers. And that was Romley Mokak, the CEO of the Lowitcher Institute. At 7.30, we had Mark Taylor uh, in a two-part series. Uh, he's a Macquarie University scientist. And 8 o'clock, we had Michael Green talking to us about an exhibition. Sorry, we're out of time, Julian. Yeah. <laughs> but we will be back next week um, with another cracking show. I know the uh, Lost in Science guys um, are up next. Uh, we'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which we transmit, people-powered radio. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.